morning, yes, Sally. indeed it is. Good morning, John, and good morning, Mark. Good morning, Sally. Good morning, John. Arts About is brought to you by the generosity of the McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery, and you're here with artist-in-residence and cultural sounding board John Baird, the marvellously obtuse Mark Stewart, and me, Sally Bailey. I think obtuse is a good word. It is a good word, isn't it? Mm, not bad. Not bad. I don't necessarily a good word to describe you, Mark, but it's a good word. It's in itself. In itself. Yeah. It's like the show, yes, I agree. Yes. So very good. So uh, it's been a great week this week. Uh, the 50 metre pool got its green light yep. uh, at council meeting last week. Where's it going, the pool? Uh, down on the corner of Besgrove Street and Bonio Road, which has been uh, um, something that the the community have wanted and been fighting for for 20, what, 20 years. years. But what sort of pool will it be? Will it be a, will it, is it going to be just chlorine or we will it be salt? Or we don't know be, yet. Don't It'll know. be chlorine. It won't be they are. We, we, we'll keep you informed. We'll or keep the reed. Informed. They're making, making these beautiful reed type and natural Yes, I don't pools. think it's going to be one of those actually. Yeah, I think we should anyway. admit it for that. I think we should start complaining. <laughs> okay. Stop it again for 20 years. Right? <laughs> John, what are you going to talk about this week? Uh, I want to talk about a, a scandalous event at the fabulous Florentino Cellar Bar. Oh, one of my favourite places. Mm. The old one, when they had the little um, uh, uh, window in the back through the, yeah, the well wine cask. Yeah, that's still there, but yes. the bar's oh. moved. And uh, right. the bar used to be up the front and there was a stuffed crocodile in the window. Yes. And uh, the era that I'm talking about was when it was owned by Frank Podgornik. Right. Great. Not well, Frank, sorry, Mr. Podgornik. Mr. Podgornik, yes. This is when George's was still open, was it? Yeah, actually, mm. it was. George's. You remember George's? Yeah, I remember. Of course I, I do. Yeah, what a lovely place that was. Yes, it was. <clears throat> Yes, what about you, Mark? What have you got for us? Um, quite a lot. Um, I'm going to give you a bit of French uh, education. Oh, <coughs> fabulous. Um, horizontal, uh, not horizontal, sorry. And, um, <laughs> current French or current French, French history? Well, it's a bit of a mix. Hmm. Um, and also about the Biennale, the Sydney Biennale coming up. Oh, yes, yes, which, that's uh, good. John is going to see next week, so I want to warn him about what, oh, about what not to see. Well, no, well, he's got 1,800 artists, um, Probably won't see them all then, John. No. I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Seven seconds each. <laughs> Today, I'm also going to be toying, p playing an interview that I did with Tracy Hutchison earlier on in the week about the inaugural Australian Women in Music Awards that's going to be staged in Brisbane on October the 9th and 10th. Um, broadcaster, academic, board member for Music Vic and chair of the Voice of Wording Rapping Hood, uh, um, beg your pardon, and, and chair of the Music Awards National Advisory Council, as well as the voice of the Wording Rapping Hood, which was on RPP FM last year. Tracy's going to be talking to us about the new awards, celebrating the achievements of Australian women in music and the renaissance that's going on right now in the music industry. But before we get to that, we're going to be talking to Beth McMahon about the theatre company The Indirect Object, who are presenting verbatim at the Footscray Community Arts Centre as part of the Festival of Live Arts that's running there across three venues over Melbourne now until the 25th. I've got a bit of a frog in my throat today. Mm, just before <coughs> um, you, you get rid of the frog, the, have you ever heard of the composer Anne Beach, American woman from the uh, late 19th century, who was, um, she married an orthop orthopedic surgeon and was a band, she wasn't allowed to, to interpret other people's music any longer. She was a very good pianist and very good mm -hmm. uh, entertainer, and he said, no, that's finished. So she started composing. And she composed some very beautiful pieces, and people have complained about the fact that her husband stopped her from um, from playing. What a brute! 
Well, no, not at all, because then now she composed, and now we've got this beautiful music which was composed in you know, by her for everybody else. Whereas if she just played, you wouldn't know about her at all. Hmm. Okay. Mm, interesting. Yes. All right. That well, may be the result, but he's a brute nonetheless. Well, apparently he was a lovely man. <laughs> Had lo- lots of children. Built right. a beautiful big house in Boston. So. Okay. That's right. an utter aside. Yeah, going, just completely blindsided me. I'm not slightly sure where to go ob- now. Slightly um, obtuse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so women composers. We're talking said. about women and music. Yeah, we are too. A lot. Yes, so, we on. are. All right, well, look, while we get Beth on the phone to talk about uh, the indirect object and verbatim, we're going to get um, uh, Naranjiri woman Ruby Hunter to sing her fabulous song, uh, Naranjiri woman. Hold on. Originally formed as a puppet company in 2006, the award-winning Indirect Object specialise in creating experiences in non-traditional spaces, exploring relationships between performers, objects and their audiences. The company creates a series of interconnecting works across varying media in long-term themes and their next production fits into one that seems to be exploring psychology. Verbatim is part of the Festival of Live Arts, Australia's largest biennial live art program featuring contemporary, experimental, interactive and participatory art developed in partnership with Arts House, Theatre Works and Footscray Arts Centre. The Festival of Live Arts runs for 13 days over March featuring more than 30 curated performances. um, Art events, public programs, talks and parties. At this year's festival... They are in partnership with Footscray Arts presenting Verbatim and they weave three intimate stories of intergenerational mental illness for an intimate audience of one, told through an immersive solo journey into the heart of life with clinical depression. Verbatim asks, at what point is a person with mental illness responsible for their actions? The indirect objects offering at this third edition of the festival is called Verbatim and is an immersive solo journey. Um... And to tell us all about it is Creative Director of the Indirect Object, Beth McMahon. Good morning, Beth. Welcome to Arts About. Good morning, Sally. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Beth, the project sounds both extraordinary and terrifying. How do you manage to create an experience of clinical depression and why? Um, It has been an extraordinary and terrifying journey for us. Um, The reason we wanted to create a work about clinical depression is because Two of the founding members of the Indirect Object, uh, Gabriel Partington and Michael Bevett, and Michael's also my husband, um, have clinical depression. And in all of the work that we have created together, that has always been a factor. You're always working with depression like another person in the room. Um, But they both also have a parent with depression. Gabriel has two parents with depression and had a grandparent with depression as well. And uh, this has been something we've talked about um, Mm. over the years. So finally, rather than trying to work around it and letting it seep into the work in its own way without it being um, something that we directly talked about or addressed, we decided that let's just make a work about this. And we've invited our family members with depression to be part of this collaboration. Wow, wow. Um, that's, it's very brave, but it's also um, a, a very tough and gut-wrenching question that you ask. Do we decide, do we as an audience get to decide if and when a person with mental illness is responsible? Or do we just as people, I should say, I guess? Um, it's not a question we're trying to answer in the work because we would all have different answers or we may not have an answer at all. Um, 
with myself watching Michael over the years and watching him go through his journey from a breakdown and not coming out of that breakdown and actually just getting deeper and deeper and then realising he needed to seek treatment and going through that and it is an ongoing journey. Um, I have often watched his behaviour and wondered, is this your depression influencing your choices or are they choices you've learnt through watching your father and his depression without realising that? Mm. Um, because he idolises his father um, and everything he's done. Um, so I've found that interesting for Rosemary, uh, who's the writer of the piece and also Gabriel's mother. Her question is, you know, how reasonable, like, you know, how reasonable is it for you to twist yourself around the person with mental illness? Do you take responsibility for easing this family path? Mm. It opens up that idea which you mentioned in the description of the project about intergenerational mental illness and how um, how do you do you separate? Does 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 it is it causative? Is it is it part of the same? Uh, strain. It, it's a very interesting idea. I don't think we talk about that very often. No, and we haven't seen work about that before either. And certainly, this is a, a question that um, both Rosemary and Jeff, so, um, Gabe's mother and Michael's father, um, have posed in conversations we've had. Um, I think certainly in Michael's family, there is a sense of it, it's brought us closer together because we have something we share. And we can support each other through this, and it's um, it's not it's not necessarily a positive bond, but it is a, a special bond that brings strength to our relationship and our family. Now, mm. um, <laughs> not always in the past, mm. um, but um, yeah, there's, there's there's feelings of guilt and shame there too. So how how does it? And I've read that it's an audience of one. How does an audience member experience this work? Well, they don't see any performers until the very end. So it's more of a visual and an audio journey that they go on by themselves. And we've created a series of spaces for them to be in while they experience this. Um, we've done a, quite a few projects just for one person at a time. And um, I think it's because with our the puppetry background of the company... Um, with puppetry, you need the audience to activate their imagination, to fill in the gaps, to bring to life what you're doing. No matter how wonderful a manipulator you are, it's still, it's still an inanimate object, and they have to participate in that. So here, it's the entire space. Everything you hear, everything you see is our puppet performing for you, and you are our puppet because we are sending you on this journey. And if you have another person with you, you can confer and you can take cues about how to interpret things from other people. Here you're just by yourself mm. and you have to do it by yourself. You're part of the performance. You are part of the performance. The performance is specifically for you in this moment in time and, and you are part of it because the way you're going to interpret and think, you are, you are left to your own devices. So, no sorry. one's there telling you what to do. Uh, Beth, uh, hi, my name is Mark. Uh, does that bring you back to the um, original idea of, of the depression being something which is um, learnt through their parents and their grandparents? 
Is that what you mean that's, by having a person alone? Oh, actually, that's a really interesting question, and I hadn't put those two things together before. We were thinking more that 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 depression is a journey you can only really have by yourself. But you need people to support you, and you need to be able to talk to people about it, both professionally and in your personal life. But yes, uh, yes. And then if you have parents who are depressed, then then you can perhaps relate to them because they've you know they've been through the same thing as you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, mm. and there is. Um, there's this really nice bond between Michael and his father over the fact that they take exactly the same antidepressants in exactly the same doses. doses. Mm. 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 It, sorry, it is interesting just how much of it is learned or how much of it comes from um, you know, from elsewhere. It's that big question about environment. Circumstance and, and genetics, yeah. yes, mm. that's right. Yes. Now, um, yeah. Verbatim means to use the same words. It's the title of this production. How does that work? Because for 80% of the performance experience that you go through, everything you hear, all the voices speaking, are the real people saying um, unscripted comments. So we did a year and a half of recorded conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really is the real people speaking verbatim from their heart. So you'll hear... They disagree with each other, um, and and there's some uh, audio we just recently recorded where uh, two people um, talked about something that they've never ever said out loud before, and that was an incredibly uh, emotional moment for everyone because we're all related. We've known each other for years and years and years, so these confessions that were coming out in front of the mic were extraordinary. Um, mm-hmm, wow. Yeah. It sounds like very um, uh, emotive stuff. It is. It, it's confronting, but at the same time, we didn't want to create something that was overly dramatic. We have felt that depression is often, and mental illness is often just, uh, portrayed as something really dramatic. Mm. Um, and other. But, and other. It's dramatic and it's other. So this is, this is the mundanity and the domesticity of mental illness on a day-to-day basis. Wow. The company's had all sorts of different um, uh, experiences or productions. That You've had, I believe, an arts health residency in a secure dementia ward. You've created interpretive puzzle rooms. You've built and operated giant roving puppets, and you include filmmaking and soundscape in your pieces. Uh, tell us a little bit about the indirect object. Oh, yes. Yeah. So... Uh, it started in 2006. Um, in the beginning, it was just me. Um, and I was creating very strange and wacky puppetry pieces. And um, most of us now who are part of it, um, we all met studying at the VCA together. So I met Michael there and we were puppeteers. And we met Jeff, who was a lighting designer. And we met Gabe, who was one of the acting students. And we've just sort of kept working together. Um with some new people coming in over the years. But um, I've always been very interested in the technical aspects of performance. So it was good to have friends who were really skilled technical artists um, to work with. And do you ever get depressed? Do I personally get depressed? Yes. Um, Ooh. (laughs) um, Mark, he's always coming at us from a different angle. No, I like it. Give, just, just give me a second. Um, 
I, um, I had a very stressful job when I was very, very young. And, Didn't we uh, <laughs> I was, I did it very well, but I was too young for the job I had and I had a breakdown. Mm. And, um, my response was I just got up and left the country for a period of time and just hid. And, um, did you go to France? Yes, I did. Because puppetry is very important there. It's very big. Yes. As you probably well, know. I didn't go to become a puppeteer. I was studying somewhere else and there was an Italian puppeteer studying with me who just said to me for a year, you should be a puppeteer. And I was like, no, I don't like puppetry until I saw the experimental puppetry that was, that was happening in, in Europe. And yeah, there's some like, amazing stuff. Oh, yeah. this is extraordinary. Mm, mm. But this you didn't, is what I want to do. You didn't become his puppet, though, did you? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was, a, I was a very sad, scared shell of a human being for most oh, of the time I was over there. You don't sound like one. No, you yeah. most certainly don't. <laughs> and no. the, the project sounds quite extraordinary. Uh, I think we're, ex we're very lucky that there's uh, this organisation, you know, Festival of Live Arts and that there are these groups like Theatre Works and Footscray um, Community Arts Centre uh, who are, an arts house of course, who are promoting these very different kinds of theatre. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a growing momentum um, and what we see as uh, experimental art today in 10 years will be um, much more mainstream, so I suppose I'll need to be creating something completely different by then. Um. Well, no doubt you will. It sounds as if you've been, you've been on that kind of trajectory for some time now. Tell us, how long does Verbatim run and how can our listeners get along to see it? It runs from March 22nd to March 24th, so that Thursday, Friday, Saturday night next week. It's at the Footscray Community Arts Centre. Um, it's from 6pm to 9pm, but you need to book... Uh, 20-minute session in the, that three-hour um, three time frame for just mm. one person. Which I think people are getting a little bit used to now with museum tickets and art galleries are, are doing it that way, aren't they? You've just got to book your moment. Mona certainly does now too with those wonderful James Terrell ex, um, exhibits down there. That's just, it. Yeah. And we, I mean, we did a one-on-one -on -one performance piece in Taipei last year and, and uh, we weren't expecting everyone to say... I just felt so special that it was just for me. We'd never occurred that, that you would feel this sense of um, specialness by being one-on-one. -on -one. But I, I would say to listeners, don't be intimidated because you don't just have to sit there and have, and have someone talk to you about how depressed they are for 20 minutes. You are, you are by yourself. You're quite free and then you meet people at the end. To experience what it might be like. That's wonderful. It's a lovely idea. Mm. Beth, it's really lovely. I like the idea. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Beth McMahon. It's been a great pleasure. Good luck with the production. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Bye. 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 You're listening to Arts About on RPPFM with Sally, John and Mark. And we've just been talking to Beth McMahon about Verbatim, which is on at the Footscray Arts Centre uh, from the 22nd to the 24th of March as part of the Festival of Live Arts on in Melbourne. Next up, there we've got a few messages from our sponsors. And after, straight after that, we're going to hear from Tracy Hutchison about the inaugural Women in Music Awards coming to Brisbane in October. There's been a rising volume to the voices around the world protesting inequalities of a myriad of different issues, but looming especially large is the issue of women's underrated and unequal portion of power in the world, resulting in underrepresentation of women in all fields of endeavour. 
In Brisbane this week, some of the biggest names in the Australian music industry have joined forces to launch the inaugural Australian Women in Music Awards, which is going to take place in Brisbane in October later on this year. In its way, it'll redress at least some sort of imbalance that exists in our Australian industry here. I've managed to coax Tracy Hutchinson into my office this week to talk to us about the awards and her role as chair of the Australian Women in Music Awards National Advisory Council. Good morning, Tracy. Thanks for coming and talking to us today. It's great to be here, Sal. It is quite a mouthful. I'm sort of seem to be gathering up very, very long names of, of um, work that I'm doing at the moment, but I'm particularly proud of this one as chair of the uh, a National Advisory Council of the inaugural Australian Women in Music Awards. And, you know, this is a, a really golden moment, I think, for the Australian music industry. And it comes uh, as a tide is really turning on representation uh, for women, particularly in the creative sector around the world. Um, we're seeing an environment where obviously off the back of, of campaigns, social media campaigns like Me Too and, and others, we're also seeing uh, women actually demanding their place and taking their place, um, particularly in the creative sector, as I mentioned. We saw earlier this year in the Grammy Awards, the probably the biggest music awards uh, in the world, in the States, of course, and the head of that organisation actually indicating to women that, you know, everything was fine, that all women had to do was step up. And the Grammys has actually been a really interesting case study because in 2012, the Grammys removed the gendered awards for best solo artists. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen in the subsequent years is the complete, almost complete erasure of women being recognised uh, in the one category that we knew that they were actually going to receive an award in, which was best female artist. And... It's a very interesting time um, to really actually acknowledge that women are really underrepresented. They're really underrepresented in the Australian music industry and the stats actually back it up. They're underrepresented uh, in terms of airplay on the radio. They're underrepresented in terms of um, positions on festival lineups, underrepresented on the boards of the industry. You know, I'm one of the few women really who occupy uh, a number of board positions. I'm on the board of Music Victoria and, and obviously on the National Council of the Women in Music Awards, but there's not that many of us. Mm. Um, and spectacularly underrepresented in all the major awards. When you look at something like the ARIA Hall of Fame, there have been 80 recipients of the ARIA Hall of Fame since 1988 when ARIA introduced that concept of a Hall of Fame. Only 11 out of the 80 have been women recipients, and two of those are Dame Nellie Melba and Dame Joan Sutherland, both incredible, but opera singers last time I checked, and not kind of rocking it out, you know, every weekend at the Corner Hotel or trying to actually take their place in what has traditionally been a very male-oriented male domain, you know, born out of the pubs, um, an environment that was very much about, you know, male rock and roll in the live music scene in Australia. Clearly that's changed now and the structures are, are, are quite different. But I think that speaks volumes about 
the representation of women historically in this industry and even something like the Hot 100 on Triple J, you know, probably the most progressive radio station that we're fortunate enough to have in Australia. But when you look at the Hot 100, which is a popular vote, it's a pretty stark list to realise that there has actually never been an Australian woman as a solo artist or an Australian band fronted by a woman that has actually won that Hot 100 spot. There have been a couple that have been close. Um, Josh and Julia Stone won in 2010 for their song Big Jet Plane, but that was very much about them as a as a brother and sister. It wasn't the Julia, ba- Julia Stone band. Um, Missy Higgins came second with Scar and the only woman in front of by a band, only a band fronted by a woman to have ever won was, um, the fabulous Dolores O'Riordan who was out front of the Cranberries with that incredible song Zombies. But, you know, that, that's, that speaks volumes about, um, the bias that exists in yeah, the industry. There's a, there's a kind of an unconscious bias and it goes right through the top. The, the major record industry, uh, is run, the, the labels are run by men. The ARIA board is made up of men because the cri- criteria to be on the ARIA board is that you run a major record company. So there's all men sitting at the pointiest end and, and that just, it just does filter down. It filters down into the A&R departments. It filters down into who gets signed. It filters down into who is going to get pushed to have their song added uh, to playlists. There are, you know... And who are going to be the role models? Yeah, who are going to be the role models and, you know, that whole, that whole thing, you know, you, you have to see what you want to be um, and you can't if you if you can't see it. You know, music directors, by and large, in this country are men. There is, there is an inbuilt um, unconscious bias there and... We can keep wringing our hands every year and um, say, oh, you know, we want a place at, at you, you know, to the men in the industry, you know, come on, create a place for us. Or we can actually just uh, bring the men with us that we know, uh, you know, recognise that we should be giving getting more um, value and create something like the Australian Women in Music Awards, which is which is kind of the, the backstory of, of why it's happening. And I guess just an, also an, a, a recognition that, the most interesting work that is going on at the moment in the Australian music scene is actually happening outside of the major record companies. It's happening um, largely through young women who are taking complete artistic and creative control uh, of their work and their copyright and their publishing, and they're actually killing it. And it's very exciting. It is incredibly exciting and led by, you know, people like Courtney Barnett and her incredible success off the back of a lounge room run record label that she runs with her partner, Jen Cloa, Milk Records. Um, and it's just sent a very clear message to young women in particular. You don't actually need the major industry. Uh, you can actually do it yourself. And I think when we look at those stats, we're actually can really honestly say that the major structure, the, the the structure of the record industry in Australia has not served women particularly well. This really is, is about redressing some history with a little bit of her story. Here we are arriving mm-hmm. on the crest of the wave. Well, I can imagine that there would be some extraordinarily excited women musicians out there in Australia at the moment. How have they responded to this uh, endeavour? The response has actually been overwhelming from women and men. 
you know, I, I think I think people recognise uh, that the time is right. Vicky Gordon is the founding director of the Australian Women in Music Awards, and I've known Vic for thirty years. I met her first when I was at the Jays at Triple Jays. A very we were both five at the time. Um, we were both very young and very very uh, idealistic and 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 very determined to hold up other women. And Vicky has been very passionate about it. This idea has been on the table uh, of the. Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk for three years. When she was first elected, Vicky took the idea. She'd been shopping it to a number of different state governments to back it. And it was one of those ideas that Anastasia Palaszczuk said uh, to Vicky, if I get re-elected and become the first woman Premier to ever be re-elected for a second term, I will green light this. I will make this part of, this will be part of my mandate. And sure enough, um, she got re-elected. Um, the, the election was late last year, I think September, October of last year. Um, we got the green light just before Christmas. Uh, Vicky had said to me, if we, if we get up, will you come on board and help me pull this together? And it's been an incredible honour. It's been a very fast um, start-up to meet the announcement date that the Queensland Government wanted, which was around um, Women's Week, Women's Day week. Um, but in a very short period of time, we've managed to pull in the support of really some of the biggest names in the Australian music industry. And we're talking about Tina Arena, Deborah Conway, Deborah Byrne, Kate Sobrano, Jenny Morris, who's chair of the APRA board, uh, who occupies, you know, a really significant position in the, uh, that's the Songwriters Board, Australian Performing Rights Association. They collect all the royalties for, for artists. And Jen has been a powerhouse in that role, uh, really actually um, stepping up and taking her place. And her quote in support of, of the Australian Women in Music Awards is, you know, let's everyone come with us and let's create the, quote, mother of all paradigm shifts. And I think that's actually what we're seeing. We, we are actually in one of those golden moments where you can actually feel the, the the change is palpable, and we saw it with the uh, the AFLW. Mm, what an inc quite... incredible shift that has done for the visibility of women in music. We've seen it with the Stella Prize for Literature, yep. how that has given women um, their due and their recognition, and recognizing that women actually bring something very different in the creative space. And the thing that I love um, about these awards as well is that it's not just going to be about awarding the artist out the front who might have sold the most records because they were backed by a major record company. Yes, there'll be an award for songwriting. Yes, there'll be award for awards for artistic excellence. But there will also be awards for, you know, best producer, engineer, uh, awards for um, music photography and digital content, um, awards for women who are doing great work in re remote and regional communities uh, in cross-cultural environments. There'll be a humanitarian award. There, there are three designated awards for First Nations uh, women, mm. and I'm really, I'm really proud of that. You know, we, we, we. This is, this is an awards that we'll recognise that women do bring something very different, and out of, out of force, we've been forced. Our artists have actually been forced to operate in large, to, in large degrees outside of the major structure of the industry because it hasn't served them. And this is just a very exciting kind of goosebump moment where you know you're part of something. And, and, and the response has been incredible.
Uh, I can imagine. Now tell us who are your patrons. So we've got some incredible patrons um, and, and that's really been my role as well to sort of bring on board the patrons and advisors. But um, really proud to say that uh, Jenny Morris, who I mentioned, the APRA chair, uh, Kate Sobrano, uh, Deborah Conway, Deborah Byrne, and the wonderful little Patty Amphlett, um, Patricia Amphlett, who is a national treasure, and and really humbling. And, and it's been an incredible honour for us to be able to bring with us two posthumous patrons, two women who um, have just been groundbreaking and much-loved um, part of the uh, Australian music industry. Um, the late and, and wonderful Chrissy Amphlett, who um, was a friend of mine, and Chrissy would have loved this week. She would have been there. She would have been, you know, fist punch, punch in the air with her fist. She would have been giggling and laughing about how incredible it was. Um, with very generous permission of, of um, Chrissy's husband, Charlie Drayton. Um, Chrissy comes with us as a posthumous patron. And, and even more profoundly, if that's possible, um, but we are carrying the legacy too of the late Auntie Ruby Hunter, very proud Naranjiri woman from the South Australian Riverland, um, the great matriarch in many ways of First Nations performers in this country, particularly women. Um, and uh, Ruby comes with us with kind permission of her husband, Archie Roach, and the Hunter family, uh, Ruby's sister and her two brothers. And those phone calls and those conversations and those those exchanges of um, of what that means and how we bring those two women with us have been really profound and really moving and uh, to be able to bring those women with us um, as we as we kind of make history is something that uh, I think is is just a great moment for for everybody not just for those of us who are kind of helping to usher this thing through it's a great moment for for women in in our industry who've made incredible contribution and it's a moment to really stop and reflect and honor them there'll be an honor roll as well of women uh, who've come before who perhaps haven't been given the recognition that they should have but we'll also be very focused on the now and the future and and very much looking to having you know being able to recognize um, the future leaders of this industry it's very very exciting uh, and I, I can only imagine it's going to have a huge effect on the industry in coming years to actually see something like this that is as you say it's a big paradigm shift it's going to be on in October in Brisbane that's right. Two days, a two-day event in Brisbane. Um, October the 9th will be a day of um, some forums, a couple of keynote speakers. We'll also uh, premiere the Queensland screening of that incredible uh, Australian documentary, Her Sound, Her Story, which uh, tells the story of a whole lot of women in the Australian music um, community and industry in a range of roles. And then the the October the 10th is the awards and a cocktail party uh, and just a really good time and a really and a really wonderful opportunity to, to, to celebrate and hold each other up. You know, we've, we've created this. This is built by women for women and, you know, get on board. Absolutely get on board. Well, I know that we're going to hear a lot more about it during the year before this actually happens. Thanks so much for talking to us today about it, Tracy Hutchison. It's been a pleasure. It is my great pleasure. I can talk about this for hours. I can tell. <laughs> Well, of course, the only way to follow that is to, uh, is to play a little bit of one of those extraordinary women, uh, the great Chrissy Amphlett, um, posthumous patron of the Women in Music Awards. Um, this is a track uh, called I'll Make You Happy. <laughs>
now it's time for John on. There you go, from uh, Chrissy Amphlett and more than likely Charlie Owens yeah. to Swanee to me. Yeah, what a, what a lineup. Yeah, it's Chrissy Amphlett, the Divinals. Oh, okay. You live Lovely name, Amphlett. Yes, it is, isn't it? Mm. Does it sound French? Amphlett. Mm. Sounds like pamphlet, yeah, it's very close. <laughs> but um, sort of forgettable music. Oh, well, it's... Excuse me a minute. Yes, yes. it's John on. Did you hear that? Yes. <laughs> John on. Um, the attentive listener, Mark, will know that I had a fondness for the uh, Florentino Salabar. And uh, I used to go... In the 19, early 1980s, um, there weren't <coughs> that many watering holes around for artists. There weren't that many artists around, actually. They were, they were just hiding. Well, maybe, but uh, they were, some of them were hiding in the cellar bar. And, uh, but there are other places, of course, like Jimmy Watson's and... Santini's. Uh, uh, the Southern Cross, the bar at the Southern Cross Hotel, those sorts of places. Um, the, the Phoenix Bar was a beauty down in Flinders Street with lots of journalists and artists in mm. there. Um, but the cellar bar was my haunt. And I remember it was sold when George Sindos sold. He sold it to a guy called Mr. Podgornik. And Mr. Podgornik lived in Spring Street somewhere. He used to come down in the mornings about 9 o'clock down to the Florentino. With a, he was a big fat guy and he'd walk down Burke Street smoking a cigar. And uh, my friend Glenn and I would be waiting down there for the place to open up so we could have a coffee. And occasionally a cannoli. And, uh, it was like a big steam train coming down Burke Street, you know, with the smoke and the sparks and the big round shape. And as Glenn, Glenn pointed out, he sort of, he smelt and sounded like a steam train as well. Mm-hmm. But he'd go, get in there and open up. And, uh, behind the bar was Alda, was the <coughs> Italian barmaid, uh, who seemed to be the only person who ever worked in there. And she was a terrific sort of gossip and uh, a good person to see in the mornings and have a coffee with. Um, but Saturday afternoons was the game for me. So I'd go in there in a Saturday afternoon and have a lasagna and a bottle of red wine and talk to all sorts of people, whoever happened to be coming through the place. The front door of it had a, um, had a brass bell like they do in a lot of French mm. cafes uh, on a little spring. Yeah, so mm. when the door opened, you get a ding, and the, it would ding again when it shut, when it closed behind them. Um, so rather than that, you know, of a broken beam, the little brass bell was a lovely thing. And I was sitting there one Saturday afternoon, and the door rang, and everyone would turn around and look at the door. When the bell rang, you'd turn and look to see who was coming in. And in came Frank Thring. Oh, the great Frank, who, of course, was uh, Pontius Pilate in uh, Cecil B. DeMille's Ben-Hur, and the, the most wonderful camp performance of a, of a, um, with, uh, of a Pontius Pilate type that well, I've no, ever not seen. As, not as good as um, David uh, Bowie's. Oh, David Bowie's a completely different animal. Completely. I know he is, but he did a very good job of it. I must have looked camp? at camp. It was, yeah, slightly camp. I mean, he's, he does camp as very well, David Pilate. Bowie. Well, yeah, it was Pontius Pilate. Very good. It was in um, what was um, Scorsese's Last Supper. Oh, yeah. Oh, 
God. Mm. Uh, Very good. With Harry Keitel as, sorry, do you know what I'm dropping again? Harvey Keitel as Judas. Well, David Bowie, however, didn't walk into the cellar bar on this particular day. Frank (laughs) Thring did. (laughs) Frank came in and he sat down with some friends and uh, I think he may have come from one of his own notorious parties. He seemed to be sort of pretty wild with booze. And uh, at one, he sort of disappeared and then reappeared. Completely. This is on the same day you're yeah, talking about? he went out into okay. the bathrooms, I think, and he reappeared and he was completely naked except for a pair of bright red briefs. I remember looking at him and thinking, well, under all that black clothing, he's got these red underpants, you know, <laughs> it seemed odd to me. <laughs> really? doesn't seem odd to me. I've got red but underpants. He was, Have yeah. you? No. Calvin Klein. He stood there in his red briefs and nothing else on. And Dear me. Stuck, How old was he at the time? I would have been 70-something. Jesus. And he stuck his arms out wide and he said in a Pontius Pilate, a Pontius Pilate kind of voice, Who would like to be between this and a leopard skin rug. Oh, how fabulous. He is terrific. Was and terrific. Uh, he had no takers. Unfortunately for Frank, Mark wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> I would have run. Fabulous. Is that but, it? Uh, yes. Well, I, although I did ask Alda how come she didn't throw him out. She was throwing people out all the time for misbehaving. And she said, I thought it was Mr. Podgonik. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. To have seen Frank Thring in the flesh. Oh, Is he still around? No, oh, no, no, he's passed away now. Okay. okay. All right, well, so moving on to the Sydney Biennale, John, oh, yeah. which uh, yeah. your mission is to um, see the 1,800 artists who yeah. are showing there. I don't think you're going to do it. Uh, from 100 countries, so mm. don't be racist. <clears throat> Make sure you see them all in seven locations. So you'll be doing, make sure you don't rent a soft top uh, Mercedes this time you go to Sydney. Um, okay, I won't. No. How long does it run for? Because that's an awful lot of artists. Look, to it, as long as you thing. need, don't and worry. And it must be spread all over Sydney. And well, seven locations. Okay. Right. So the, the, my preference, my, my preference is for the, um, the island. Cockatoo Island. Cockatoo Island. island. Apparently yeah. everyone's preference is there. You're going to see IYY's, um, I did see black PVC. An image of it. And I'm not particularly interested in IYY or his big blow up. I'm glad, sculpture. I'm very glad to hear that, John. That's why we're yeah. friends. Because I don't think mm. IYY is much of a right home about either. I think every time you read his name, it's dissident or, you know, this. Of course, he's been doing some good things to the earthquake victims, etc. but I don't think it has anything to do with his art. Anyway, I want to just take you to France for a minute because oh. you might hear when you go to France, people say, Ooh, il a pété, which means, Oh, he just farted. Pete. Pete. Ah, you're not going to tell us about the Peter Man, are you? No, I'm not going to tell you about the Peter Man. I will definitely not. But you also hear, il est pete, which means, doesn't mean he's a fart. It means he's stoned or he's drunk. Okay. Because all this comes from petar, which is, uh, the penny bunger, which is, uh, fireworks. Oh. Petar, and you, you, when you say to someone, do you want to smoke a joint? You don't say, um, do you want to smoke it? You say, would you like to smoke a petar? Ah. Okay, so they're all related, but um, not in the ways you might think. How's it spelled? P E T A R D with a ah, yes. circumflex. What if you foolishly say yes, yeah, yeah, and then they it? hand you a firecracker? Well, that's the thing. You, yeah. would, you make sure it's not a light, John. Or just your own light. Yes. <laughs> just listen to Nancy. Just say Was it no. Nancy? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so um, 
that was just on a on just to mix in with the Biennale. Mm-hmm. Right. So now, going back to the Biennale. Going yeah. back to the, the Biennale. So you pressed me with time, so I, I know, I'm, I'm sort sorry. of jumping over. So the, the, the Biennale is called superposition, or is it uh, supposition? <laughs> no, superposition. Supposition, supposition is something else, isn't it? It's got to be supposition. It it's can't be, be superposition. <laughs> <laughs> And then it goes on, equilibrium and engagement, John. So I just hope you get equilibrianized and engaged when you yeah, go to see these um, 1,800 people. Well, engagement is what you want, of course. That's, uh, I mean, it's a very imp- important part of your relationship with art. Yes. If you're not engaged, nothing's going to happen. No. no. Also yeah. with your girlfriends as well, it's the same yeah. thing. Um, the director is Mami Kateoka, who was the Hawaiian ping pong champion in 1966, apparently. <laughs> what? And she's, uh, she's the one who's decided on, on all these lovely artists. It must be a great job being a creator, flying around the world and choosing some desperate artist to come and show his work in your well, huge yes, face. Sure I'll tell you what, it'd be a lovely job. It'd be the Hawaiian ping, ping pong, pong champion. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Yes. Um, now, John, before I forget, you must go downstairs to the New South Wales Gallery mm-hmm. at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. There's an installation of the um, archival work from all the Biennales from 1973 when the first so Biennale opened. So this stuff opened. they've collected. This is stuff they've they've got things like an old pair of Lloyd Rees shoes oh, and a yeah. um, uh, what was the name? The Proctor woman, Theo Theo Proctor, one of her dresses that she apparently she made. Oh, Amanda will be interested in that. Exactly. She probably stole it from an op shop and, and just put a few things on it. But anyway, that's apparently in there. So that's downstairs at the New South Wales Gallery. So you can look at just all the history of the Biennale, which I'm sure would just bore you to tears. Well, we always go, go to the gallery. So it is yeah. a lovely gallery. I really enjoy that. And the, one of the reason, one of the things I love about the Sydney Gallery is that you don't only have an opportunity to look at art you can look out the windows too yes well that's what they're going to do with the rest with when they're um, building they're going to build all the way down that slope so that you can walk through and there's just going to be big views of the bay so you don't have to even worry about the art harbour harbour sorry the harbour it's true (laughs) (laughs) yeah well you should know you've been painting it a lot lately haven't you yep i have yeah so that's it oh fabulous (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Shelly was drifting off. I've she never seen that before. <laughs> Hark. Oh, my God, the news. It's time for the news, yes, of course. Verbatim is on at Footscray Arts Centre, 22nd to the 24th of March, with tickets going on at footscrayarts.com. And then, no, I'm going to say this one, John. Play on the Art of Sport, a Nets Victorian Ian Potter Museum of Art Touring Exhibition celebrating 10 years of the Basel Sellers Art Prize. is coming to Mornington Peninsula, is in Mornington Peninsula until 29th of April. Apparently it's not very successful, but there's the jewellery. You must have a look at that. Mornington Lola jewelry. Greeno's beautiful jewellery, cultural jewels. The, it isn't no, a part of the Basel Sellers. It's in the other end of yeah, the, it's of the same building, yes. Uh, John Baird's um, exhibition called Regatta is on at the Art House Gallery in Sydney on um, opening March the 23rd. Space. Yeah, opening the 22nd, actually. 22nd. Oh, I thought it was the 23rd. Yeah. Uh, Concrete Fields by David Hurwitz is on at Bright Space, and that's in St Kilda. Yeah. Is. Seasons is a photographic exhibition of the work of Kate Donnelly. Uh, it's on at the Merrick's General Store, and it showcases her photographs of the Mornington Peninsula. The, well, as we were just talking, the 21st Biennale of Sydney calendar of public programs and events is live. Now you can go to their website to see what's on. Their website <laughs> is so literal. <laughs> it's my terrible, and terrible on typing. It, on it, uh, Fark, 
on the 18th March, uh, on the 18th of March, Women on the Verge, which the obtusitrist obs- over there finds hilarious. Well, that's hilarious, just that it means prick. Yeah, women yeah, on penis. Yeah, it's more so it's, Make it's that, on tonight, of that what you will. Yes, that is on tonight. Right. An adaption of monologues by Dario uh, Poe. And Franca Rame, Italian, she's an Italian actress, apparently. <laughs> yeah, she is. While written in the 1970s, the four renditions demonstrate these issues of inequality and abuse. That. That's my terrible typing. Sorry, folks. Yeah, I can't even yeah, read that. Don't worry about that. But it is on tonight at the Frankston Arts Centre. Even though I did practice, Sally. I didn't. They didn't read my book, my script. There's a new Easter Salon and Art Parade coming up on the 31st at Whistlewood Gallery. Aboriginal works and an informative commentary by Susan McCulloch. Um, it's free, but you need to register your interest on Eventbrite. Do we talk about the Melbourne Fringe applications opening on April the 9th? Yeah. If you've got a show you think could take shape there, put that date in your diary. Yeah, that's right. If you've just tuned in, you've missed Arts About. You can hear the repeat on Wednesdays at 12 or listen to the podcasts on the station website. We'll be on again same time next week. Uh, That's 11am on Sunday. And you can find some links to some of the things we've talked about today on our Facebook page and get to hear what's coming up as well.